Today on Voices Amped, we share the space with PhD student and Central Florida resident, Rafa Sayamil. She is a University of Kentucky graduate, an alumna of The Girl Project, and previously served as a mentor for The Girl Project Next Generation. Listen as Rafa shares about her experience of being born and raised in America as the daughter of Indonesian immigrants, her research in computer graphics and virtual reality, how she navigates the complexities of being a strong woman in male-dominated spaces, how she manages anxiety, skateboarding, heels classes, and so much more. It is an honor to introduce you to the fiercely intelligent and inspirational Rafa Sayamil. Welcome and thanks for listening. This is Voices Amped. I'm Ellie Clark. And I'm Margaret McLadry, and we're your hosts. We are so excited to have Rafa here with us today, a Girl Project alumni representing a new generation on our podcast. Rafa, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent, excellent. Um, I'm going to embarrass you a little bit and read your bio. Are you ready? Absolutely. Let's do it. Okay. Rafa Siamil is a Lexington, Kentucky native currently residing in Orlando, Florida. She is an alumni of the 2015 class of the Girl Project and has served as a Girl Project Next Generation mentor, a voice as heard performer multiple years, right? Yeah, a P- she was part of the PhD Divas, and she was the alumni representative for the Girl Project Advisory Board. While the Girl Project sparked her love for theater and performance arts, she has been an avid lover and creator of the arts her whole life. She graduated from the University of Kentucky, yes, in August 2020 with a bachelor's degree in computer science and a minor in math. She was part of the ACM and the ACMW Society who support, celebrate, and advocate for women in computing. She is currently on a mission to connect her love of art and performance with her interests in computer science and is pursuing a PhD from the University of Central Florida, where her research interests are in computer graphics and virtual reality. It's so badass. The end goal (laughs) is to develop innovative tools and technology to further animation and film production. So when she's not in the research lab, you can find Rafa in dance classes, which we will talk about, at jam sessions with her friends, falling off her skateboard, learning to cope and manage anxiety, and making the most of being in her 20s. She is open and proud about the fact that she has a complex around a being a strong female in male-dominated spaces and hopes to be a role model for her fellow female peers and help them recognize their strength and power. Yes. (laughs) And wow, wow. Did we miss anything in that uh, insane list of the amazing things that you've been up to? The funny thing is, is that I missed that I was a part of ACM and ACMW when I was writing out my bio. Like I was ACMW president for two years and I just completely forgot to put that in there. So thank you for catching that. You're welcome. <laughs> I think it's what, what does ACM stand for? ACM is Association for Computing Machinery and the ACMW is like the special interest group that focus on um, celebrating and empowering women in computer science. So we are like ACM is the big organization. ACMW is one of the like 
offshoot children organizations and it's like a big national thing and a lot of schools have different chapters and people are really involved in different ways sweet yeah I definitely had to look it up when I was reading your bio through the first time I'm like what is this so how are you where are you we know you're in Florida how are you coping in pandemic times what's it like being uh, or pursuing a PhD during a pandemic tell us it is very interesting because so like when I graduated, my last semester was right when like the pandemic hit and the quarantine. So I lost basically the last semester of my senior year. So like when I graduated, I basically turned in my last assignment on Canvas and went, huh, I guess that's it. Um, so I didn't get to walk or anything. Yeah. And yeah. then like I, I graduated in August because I had to like I was supposed to take an exam and that got pushed back because of the pandemic and I had to take it over the summer and then immediately moved here and started school in August at the end of August um, and it's just been weird because the my advisor my professors they also just got hired last January so they haven't even been able to get fully set up because of the pandemic and everything so right now I'm in one of our research labs but it's still very empty none of our technology is in here it's just desks um, and we're still waiting on furniture and all this stuff because like it's been hard to just get in um, I wasn't in here at all last semester and now we're just getting into actually being in the labs and like I get to finally meet the people that I work with um, and get to actually start using the technology because like where my research is in virtual reality, a lot of it is based on being able to use um, like technology, like all the headsets and stuff. So, you know, if I was just doing research in databases, I could do all my work remote, but like there's stuff that I'm supposed to, supposed to be doing research with and user studies with that I haven't even touched before. Um, oh. because it's just not set up. It's really, really weird. So do you feel like you're going to be behind um, a little bit once once we're through this, or do you feel like that's something that you will catch up with? I think it does put me a little bit at a disadvantage. I was talking to my advisor the other day, actually, and essentially she said, you know, like this year might end up being a lost year for you just because, um, you know, not only the pandemic and because of where the lab is set up but because you're so young and you spent the whole year just trying to figure everything out and you had to figure it out through a pandemic so um i don't like anticipate it like causing a huge issue but it is something that like i wish i didn't have to deal with it in the first year of something that's so different than what i'm used to am i allowed to ask your exact age yeah yeah, yeah i'm 23 i just turned 23 in december and you're in pursuit of your PhD. Margaret, is she on a traje- trajectory similar to yours in your pursuits? No, she, I mean, she kind of, Rafe is a little bit different in that you kind of went straight through, even though you've been working in a lot of different kinds of like interesting industry internships and stuff through school, which from my understanding of computer science, which is mainly entirely through your experiences, Rafe, through undergrad, is that it, you all do a lot, unlike some other degree programs, there's a lot of like applied work for different kinds of industry. So you're a little bit different than me in that you went like straight through from undergrad into the PhD program. And I took three years off in between undergrad and PhD program. I was also doing my PhD while I was working full time. So Rafa, Mm -hmm. the way I understand it, you've got like funding through the lab to be able to do your studies, right? And then you work for them part of the time when you're not doing classes, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm fully funded through the university. I have, I'm a graduate research assistant through the lab. So Everything is, you know, I have two classes and then I do research, Um, but I'm also working part-time for a software contractor um, that I got connected with through my senior design project. So I have lots of stuff always going on and like throughout my undergrad, it was very similar. I think at one point um, my senior year, I had three jobs. (laughs) I was a TA and 
uh, a software contractor um, and then I, I think for two places. So yeah, I've done I've done a lot of things and, and my, my advisor actually did mention that she doesn't usually like it when people go straight from their undergrad into their PhD. But like, I mean, like, why not? Like I'm already doing school. Like I know what I want to do. I'm, I'm just going to keep going and just like get it done. And, like, Good for you. Yeah. I remember you and I had different conversations about like kind of pros and cons of that, but you've had such a varied kind of experience with these different kinds of uh, these, these different kinds of internships. And I just think that's a really cool, you know, that was a cool part of my undergrad, which was in journalism. And we also did a lot of internships, right? So I worked for TV stations, for magazines, for different radio shows, you know, and you get kind of a chance to see what it's like to be a professional in those those fields. So I think there's a lot of, you know, it's it's not quite the same as getting an English undergrad and rolling straight into a, a lit PhD where you maybe haven't been in the classroom yeah. or, or something like that, or had other kinds of experience with like K through 12 to um, give you some context and, and that kind of thing. And what's the name of your lab again, Rafa, the one that you're, you're working at as a research yeah. assistant? So it's called the VAR lab, the virtual and augmented reality lab. Um, it's headed by Dr. Carolina Cruz Niera and Dr. Dirk Reiners. They're um, they're incredible. They're they're married and they're just like incredible people in VR. Dr. Um, Cruz Niera, who's like my like direct advisor, is one of the VR pioneers. So she created something called the um, Cave um, Automatic Virtual Environment. I think is the exact name. I'd have to look it up. Um, but it like she created that for her dissertation in like the 90s, and it is like groundbreaking important piece of like virtual reality history um so it's super it's like such an honor to have you know applied to central florida without even realizing that she was going to be here and then mm. get to be one of her phd students um and get to like work with them because they're such great people and the one thing i appreciate the most about um, dr cruzanera is that she rejects a lot of the um typical standard academia you know like you know, check out papers, you know, journals, conferences, publications, you need to get your name on a paper. And she's like, what are other ways that we can, you know, disseminate our work and get it to the people that need to see it? And I'm like, yes. Mm. Like, I think when I was interviewing with her last year in the summer, she talked about like a dance performance that they like a virtual reality dance performance that they like they did in New York and they sold tickets and it was like a whole weekend and all this stuff. And I'm like, you, this is exactly <laughs> where I need to be. I love that. So <clears throat> let's, just give our audience here a little context. I mean, we've read your bio. You were an alumni of the Girl Project. We met you, I guess, in I guess we met you in 2015. You came to interview. Mm -hmm. I remember we were you were in the lobby at Woodford Theater. You walked through the doors. You were with your dad. You know, so sweet to have this young woman coming in to interview with her dad. We don't see that a lot. We see girlfriends come in together to interview. Oh, sometimes we see moms or girls are probably like, just drop me off. I don't want you to come in with me. But your dad walks in and sits down on the bench. Um, so it was really brave of your father. And I definitely want to talk about that. But let's start with how you heard about the Girl Project and why you knew at that age that you wanted to be a part of something yeah. potentially like the Girl Project. Yeah. The one thing I do want to say first is that I don't even remember that my dad had walked in with me. So when I saw that on the questions, I was like, what? Like, that, that's okay. something I never thought about. Like, I just completely, like, yeah. So that, that was a, that was a shock to me when I read that. <laughs> but yeah, so I heard about the Girl Project from my friend, Chelsea Southworth, who was in the class of 2014. Um, we did orchestra together. 
and you know after she had her performances and everything and, and they were ramping up for interviews she's like Rafa and like to all of our friends like you have to be part of this it's something you have to do you're gonna love it blah 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 here are the interview dates and I went okay um and then just like kind of thought about it and like it doesn't it like she said it and I was like I mean I don't know and, and it kind of like the interview dates passed and whatnot um and then I get like a Facebook notification and she tagged me in a post that said you guys are doing another day of interviews there's an extra one um like this weekend and Chelsea's like this is a sign you have to do it and I'm like I mean I guess it is like I can't argue with that um and it was all the way in the Woodford theater so I, I don't even remember what I told my parents because I was trying to like piece together like that memory and I I don't remember I just remember asking them to drive me to Woodford um my mom and my dad both came I guess my dad came in with me um and I just like interviewed with you and I remember I remember saying to you guys like they're like you know I'm not really like a writer I'm not really like an actor or anything like I really love music and that's kind of my thing um but I just like want to meet new people and make new friends and I just want to have like a, a community and just like broaden my uh my circle because I felt like I I wanted to be meeting more people um and that's kind of like what pushed me to do it I didn't know what to expect I don't even know why like I pushed myself to do it because it's very unlike anything that I would have done. Because I remember, I remember, I think it might have been the very first class or second class you had. Someone came and talked to a theater like audition thing that I had, you know, wandered into because my friend was going. And you guys talked about the girl project, and I was like, oh, that sounds really interesting. And it was the year that Catherine Hale was in it because she she went to my school, um, and I didn't interview or really think anything about it. But it was something that I was like, huh, like that's kind of cool. Like, I might, I might like keep an eye on that one. So. Yeah. What is it like being a part of the girl project then? Like once you were, you're in after the, the interview um, and what was its kind of influence? And, and do you feel like that community uh, element was part of what you experienced, like that you were um, looking to find going in? Yeah, it definitely was a slow process because so like, I think our year was the last year you guys did it where we met like twice a month or once a month or something. Um, and then over the summer we had our like big intensive where we were there every day, like writing, practicing, et cetera. Um, so like we made connections with each other, but then just never kept in touch after those meetings. So it, it kind of felt like, you know, people you saw in a club where you'd see them and you'd make good connections with them. Um, and like, it was always really fun to hang out with everyone and like to meet new people. And like every, I felt like session and, and like guest artists that we had, we all got closer together, but it wasn't until we were, you know, seeing each other every day that I felt like we were like tight. And it was super cool to have those people in every day being like, I'm gonna go hang out with my friends at the theater for a couple hours and we're just gonna have so much fun and we're gonna work together on this thing that we, you know, are, we made together. And it, it, I did feel like we really created a community. Um, and it was something that I was really glad that I had in my junior year and going into my senior year. And you learned that you were a writer. Yes, <laughs> I did, which was something that was very new to me. I'm like, whoa, I can do this? That's crazy. <laughs> you did it so well. And I, I remember as we were in the intensive part in the summer, right, you, I guess during the workshops, uh, you would come in in your hijab and you would take it off and you you know, it was something we saw you in, saw you not wearing. Um, but there was a point in that intensive in the summer where you came to Vanessa and I and you said, I don't want to wear my hijab during the performance. What do you think about that? And Vanessa and I had no idea how to respond to that. We were like, 
um, why is she asking our permission? Yeah, she can do whatever she wants. So then it took me immediately to how is this going to um, what will this experience be for your parents if they're coming to see this show um, and they're expecting a daughter that they have an expectation of to wear this hijab? How are they going to feel if they see her without this? on and we were like Rafa we really need to leave this up to you where are you what are you feeling so can you tell me like that evolution and why why you came to that decision right before these performances mm -hmm. <clears throat> I think it's something that like in my heart I knew it wasn't it wasn't going to happen like I knew that for something that was so personal and something that like I felt like like even when I was like doing orchestra performance and performances and stuff like that, I didn't really want to be wearing hijab. It just didn't feel like it was a part of me. It didn't feel like it was a good representation of who I was. And so for the girl project, it just made sense to me that like I wasn't going to wear it. It was just kind of like making, having to make that decision was like, okay, now I have to decide whether I'm going to invite my parents and they're going, this is where I'm just going to out myself or if I'm going to find a way to hide and lie and not get them there so I can be my authentic self without worrying what their reaction is going to be. And I opted for the second one. I didn't, I ended up not inviting them to the performances or like making excuses for why they couldn't come. And like, they really did want to come and I, I think they really wanted to be a part of it. I just didn't feel like I was in a place, especially at like 17, where I could be my most authentic self and share that with them like even now like my parents just found out that I stopped wearing hijab like less than a year ago and I was I'm 23 now so like so when you're I'm very home, much my own person when you're home you're wearing it or when you're with your parents you're wearing it not anymore which is which is fun it's a fun story of how that happened I was at a I was at a coffee shop in Lexington um studying for my like GRE or something I mean it was coffee week um, and my mom works at a Starbucks and she had heard about coffee week and like I like I would never expect her to show up at a coffee shop but like lo and behold I like turn around and she's standing right there in line and I went shit <laughs> what do I do <laughs> so I just like tried to pretend I didn't see her <laughs> and I sat down and then I was like doing my work and then like I saw her come sit in front of me and I went hi <laughs> and that was it and then from then on I didn't wear it because she already caught me. So there was no was reason that, to hide anymore. Was it a challenging conversation? Did she ask? Or is it something you think she knew already? She definitely knew. The thing is, my mom has the most incredible mom sense. I like, I swear she's psychic. Like, she's, there's no way she's not, like, some kind of psychic. <laughs> um, so she knew. She just didn't have, like, proof. So she couldn't say anything. Um, but I think after that, I don't know why she didn't make a big deal. Or, like, because I remember in high school, one time she caught me, like, going out the door to school without wearing it and I went home and I got a huge lecture like for an hour like she like walked into my room closed the door and was like we need to talk and I'm like this is not fun um but she didn't say anything to me um and she just got comfortable with it so like uh we moved she they moved me down to Orlando I didn't wear it like we took pictures around the campus like I wasn't wearing it like I go back home now and like we go out to places and I don't wear it and it's just not a conversation we have anymore which is I think if I was 17 that wouldn't have happened like that I think it's because I'm 23 now and I've moved out and I'm my own person my parents can be like okay like there's nothing we can do yeah and you were born and raised in America but your parents immigrated here will you talk about where they immigrated from and yeah maybe how your experience differs from theirs perhaps yeah so my parents are both from Indonesia they're both from the island Java um, my mom is from Surabaya, which is the second largest city, and my dad's from a super, super small village, like, they burn their trash still to this day, um, small village. So, like, my dad grew up 
very religious. Like there was a mosque that was basically connected to their house. Like their dad was like the elected religious leader of like the village and all this stuff. Um, and like that was a part of him and an expectation of him. He's also the oldest son. So there's a lot that comes with that. And then my mom is the oldest, not the oldest, like um, I, she has like younger brothers, but she's the oldest of the family. And she honestly didn't grow up that like conservative um, um, in like Islam and stuff. But, you know, as they like when they met, they met in college um, and my dad kind of urged her to be more like devout and all these things. And like they immigrated here in the 90s when my oldest brother was two. Um, and me, I have two, so I have two older brothers. My oldest one was born in Indonesia and the other one, we were both born in Lexington. So we all are very Americanized. We all grew up here. We kind of like are a part of the American culture, but like, like I felt like my parents, like being away from Indonesia, like my mom almost like has become more religious and like they're mm. just in general, very conservative religious people. And not, not in a way that is, um, I guess, not in a way that's like outwardly to the people around like the community, but like to us, like they, they have an expectation of us that is very traditional, um, you know, being the only girl, like they expect me to act a certain way. They expect my brothers to act a certain way. Like they want us to present ourselves in a certain way. Um, and that kind of was a common thread throughout my whole childhood and my life. Um, so like my brothers and I have a unspoken agreement that we lie for each other. Um, because mm. it's easier to be our authentic selves and, you know, not tell our parents exactly what's going on because that's how we live. <laughs> but you're saying your parents drove you down to Florida going to school. So to some degree, you're close to your parents. Is that true? Yeah, it's it's such a weird place to be because, like, I care so deeply for my parents and my parents care so deeply for all of us. They want what's best for us. And, like, that's why they push us to, you know, follow the religion and everything is because they want what's best for us um and like I think like it just goes to show like them not making a big deal about me wearing hijab and all this stuff like they they care about me and they care about like my like autonomy I guess but they also are going to do everything they can to push me to do what they think is right something like uh, a couple years ago I had a conversation with my oldest brother because I felt like you know I couldn't do anything for my parents like they just kept you know they forced us to do this blah 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 and they're like well, no, they've never forced you to do anything. They've never like held you mm. down or like told you like, you know, I'm going to take X away if you don't do this. They just want to guide you to what they think is right. And they're going to do everything in their power that they to do that. Um, but at the end of the day, they love you and they care about you. And like, you could go and tell them that you did the worst thing ever and they're going to be there to support you. Um, so it, it just like, it's it, like, especially like in high school, it was so weird to be like, oh man, I, my parents are creating like such like hardship for me. And like, it's so hard and blah, blah, blah. But it's like at the same time, like I love them so much. And like, I just wish we didn't have to go through all that. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what it was like. Um, I remember you going back to Indonesia with your family as a, as a young adult, you know, and kind of getting a chance mm -hmm. to kind of see their world and where they're from. And I like, how, how did that trip relate to kind of your understanding of, you know, your and your brother's kind of, uh, you know, agreement and, and that these kind of intergenerational things that seem really, from what I understand, like a lot of pretty common to like first and second gen immigrant kind of experiences. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting because I think especially when you like get older, you start to learn like why your parents are the way that they are. <laughs> so like going back, it's, it's just so weird. They just like open up to you and you're like, oh my God, you're a person, what? <laughs> so like we, we went back and like, like my mom would 
would talk to me about how like she even she wanted like rejected kind of the expectations that the Indonesian community was putting on her like people like other women like in Indonesia like it's a thing with Asian culture especially like you have to fit a specific mold like you have to wear makeup you have to wear lipstick you have to like you know act a certain way and all this stuff my mom is just like that's not that's that's not me like I don't like wearing makeup I don't like doing this but like when I'm here I feel like I have to and I'm like whoa like my even my mom is like I'm like like she has told me before she would never move back to Indonesia because she hates having to fit into that mold and fit into that culture that is Mm. definitely not her um, which I find so interesting because, you know, if she was in Indonesia, she could, you know, have a better Muslim community and all these people. But she's like, no, I would never go there. I'm like, what? Um, and just getting to like, just like see, just like see where my parents grew up and, and understanding like my dad's childhood and like where his house and like, you know, how everyone, how everyone in the community views him and how he has to hold himself up to a higher standard because he's, you know, not only the oldest son, but like, the son of the chief of the village and and all of this stuff and like he has so much weight and responsibility that is put on by like the community and his family um it's just like you see where all those things come from and like why they act the way that they do do you feel like your parents have a strong muslim community in lexington Yes and no. The Indonesian community in Lexington, a lot of them are Muslim and a lot of them know each other, but it's with immigration and and because a lot of people come there for UK, a lot of people will leave um, and like they have their friends and stuff, but the community when I was younger was way stronger. You know, we'd see each other every Friday for gatherings and like they'd have all their friends and everything. And like, I like, I like want, I honestly want my for my for my mom's sake and for my parents sake to move to a city where there's a stronger community because I feel like they'd be a lot happier getting to interact with people like my mom cares a lot about like memorizing the Quran and like teaching and all these things and I'm like mom I want you to move down to Orlando because they have a huge mosque and you could like teach there and you can meet more people and like study with them and all these things and I feel like I I want them to have friends in a community essentially that they can like relate to because I feel like they need that of course so I i I don't want to say I think the girl project had an impact on you because I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I do know that <laughs> I'll say it. <laughs> <laughs> I do know uh, it hasn't bothered me. <laughs> I would love to hear, you know, what you walked away with and why I know that your mentorship and then working with Margaret on the PhD Divas and your relationship with Margaret post girl project has just gotten stronger and stronger and just tell us about that experience and why you started mentoring and what it was like when Margaret, you know, invited you to be part of the PhD Divas and what that was like. Yeah. <clears throat> so the Girl Project, like I still, I still say this to the day, I tell this to everyone, um, is the thing in my life that kind of set me on the path to become the person I wanted to be. Um, I felt like it helped me realize that like I had the confidence to do a lot of things. I had, you know, wisdom and I had strength and I, you know, it's just about not holding yourself back. And without the girl project, I wouldn't have done theater. You know, I wouldn't have done all these things. And I definitely wouldn't have been as strong as a mentor as I am now because I've had those experiences. Um, and I like, I just like, it made me realize that like, not only do I care about like myself and wanting to be the best, be my best self, but also helping the people around me to also recognize their own strength and get to that point too. So, you know, with, the Girl Project Next Generation, we got to, like, I think I started that before I finished my experience with the Girl Project. So I was kind of going through this journey with, like, the middle school girls and, like, 
like honestly taking some of the things that they were saying and like thinking about it in my own stuff and like in when we were in workshops and things like that and then like um you know coming to college and getting to be a part of ACMW was like oh great like not only you know I just finished this huge like girl project thing but now I get to do like mentoring and like get to like be in a group of empowered girls in computer science already you know so like it's such a male-dominated field and it's so hard for women to feel you know strong and empowered in this place um and then I you know was able to be a leader in that and a mentor and then also like do stuff with like younger girls in ACMW and that kind of thing um and it's just like something one of the when I was president of ACMW every first meeting that we had for the new semester um I opened it um with like setting one rule that would exist at meetings in our conversations like whatever and it was the do not apologize don't make disclaimers rule that we like did when we made the girl code my year um because i felt like every single person especially women in stem are so quick to apologize and be like oh like i'm sorry but and like all this stuff and i'm like no this is a mentality that you have that you need to get rid of because it's going to hold you back so much so i would like be like you're not allowed to apologize if you apologize you catch someone so you will get called out there's no apologies allowed and then we watched like a little like funny video that I found that's like it's an Amy Schumer video um it's in terrible quality but it's like a conference of women who are at the top of their field like a panel um and they're just like apologizing profusely and it keeps like getting like more and more and more intense and it's until like they're like some guy like gets his like legs chopped off and all the all the women are just like I'm so sorry and I'm like bro it's not even your fault <laughs> like you're just <laughs> it's just crazy but it's such a good example of like women who are literally literally at the forefront of their field being like oh I'm so sorry or like oh like that like that's not something that like is that that cool and I'm like no like and I've like there are people at the end of the year and stuff that I've talked to who are like I still think about that I still think about how much I apologize and I try to catch myself doing it and like it's not something I would have thought about if you didn't bring that up and I'm like yes that's all I want is for women to stop apologizing <laughs> but yeah that's awesome and uh you know I really think that uh so many aspects of uh being a mentor means that you're you you have to practice what you preach um and that's part of why I love being in those kinds of relationships because it holds me to a higher standard in terms of, if, if yeah. this is really what I believe is that women in these spaces can't apologize for taking up space, then I gotta yeah. do it too, you know? And I, I think that's exactly. a, a really uh, powerful element of, and mentorship is kind of a fake it till you make it or, or giving giving you that kind of, I can't maybe do it for myself, but I can do it for the, my, my, my mentees and the people I, I want to be kind of growing with, you know? Um, and I think there's yeah. a, definitely an element of that in the way that, you know, we approach the PhDivas from like a team perspective, you know, where we're trying to build from each other's strengths and knowledge and insights <laughs> and from a, a participatory research design, right? So instead of it being about me deciding what we were studying and how, it was about creating a team of Girl Project alumni from multiple years who all had their own strengths and intelligences and ways of seeing that they brought to, to bear. So I'm curious how like that experience with the PhDivas, how you see it maybe like relating to mentorship as you've been developing as a mentor um, and, mm -hmm. and, and also how it relates to your own experiences with research uh, in the, mm -hmm. over the last few years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so 
<clears throat> the PhD was a really cool experience um, because like it felt like such an honor to be getting to do that kind of like evaluatory like research um, and then also with the context of like it was literally for your dissertation it's like well like I can't believe that you know someone at this like caliber trusts us you know girls who are starting college and just in high school who like participated in this for a year to do research and collect this data and like come up with the research questions and like collect the data and then analyze the data at the end of it too it was such a like a unique opportunity that we were given um and it also kind of felt cool because we were evaluating that year of the girl project um so we kind of like i felt like the people who like did get to go to like the um like the workshops and like actually like collect the data almost got to go through that journey with them and got to see how they grew and collect all that data and I think in general, like it's important to take stock and to like take a step back and like think about like, you know, what things you're doing and how they're helping and, and all this stuff, especially as a mentor. Cause like, if you can't, you know, evaluate or be aware of what impact you're having, then like, you're not going to be the best mentor because you just, you just don't know. So it, it, like, I felt like the whole, the whole thing was just such a, such an interesting opportunity to grow as like a researcher, um, as a mentor and just like as a person. And to be a part of the girl project in a completely different way, like evaluating it and like how it's affecting other people and being like, oh yeah, like that's happened to me too. And like, now you guys are getting it. So like, obviously it's not just like a fluke. It wasn't just me. It's just, it's the, it's the experience. <clears throat> and that actually reminds me of, you know, when you were talking earlier about how you were making this decisions, whether to invite your parents to come to the, the girl project and some of like the community elements of what the girl project is in addition to developing your own kind of creative artistic voice and critical consciousness. Um, you know, from my perspective as the, the, the quote unquote researcher, right? Like my dissertation, whatever, you know, um, I, there's so many points, decision-making points throughout that project that if I wouldn't have had like the brain trust of these eight young women who were working on this, I would have, it would have gone totally differently. And the, what I, the example I'm thinking of um, the most is kind of the, the research question we all developed about who attended the girl project, who didn't and why. And then we did this like mm -hmm. social network analysis and it was really fascinating to get a sense of how people were using, similar to what you were talking about, Rafa, like with your own kind of criteria for who can I afford to show my authentic self? And how does that, mm -hmm. like, what does that mean when I'm building kind of a community, not only of my peers in this group, but also who's gonna be in the theater with me receiving that and, and being the audience for that performance. And I, I think like the complexities of what it is to wear all of these different kinds of masks that we a lot of, we all have to do to survive in different kinds of settings. That was such a cool and insightful element of what like the co-research, what, what you all as a PhD was brought to the table is again, things that I would not have even been thinking about because it was your lived experience of the the kind of factors mm -hmm. and calculus that you know are, are coming to to bear so um how would you how would you describe like that kind of experience with like a feminist participatory program a, a very much like feel-good developmental kind of thing with like research in stem areas very much more of like a positivist kind of paradigm that that kind of thing mm -hmm. like what are the research cultures maybe like yeah. how would you compare and contrast them see i feel like the biggest thing is that when you hear like feminist like whatever you're immediately you're going to turn somebody off because they're going to be like oh you guys are just going to be like screaming like whatever like you guys are just a bunch of like saws like 
I don't really care about what you have to say. But then when you do like STEM research and you're like, well, these are my numbers and I have this data and like this evaluation, I did a cross, like a three cross line, you know, test. Of, it, it's like, oh, like I can trust you because now you have numbers. It's like, well, why can't, why? It, it's like, if you have you ever had the experience of like talking to someone who's like consider themselves like, oh, like I'm a very logical person. I don't let my emotions like weigh into my decisions versus someone who's like, oh, like, you know, I'm a very emotional thinker, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, well, like you need both things. You need the logic, you need the statistics, you need the data, you need the concrete evidence, but you also like have to take the emotional side of it into play too. Um, so I feel like a lot of people, you know, will just be like, oh, like research data, like this is how it should be when, you know, there's so much that you can learn from like things like the girl project and like, like every year I felt like a lot of the girls went through the same thing in which we saw in like the study and like we were able to kind of like collect the data for, um, but we wouldn't have come to those questions if we weren't thinking about it from like a lived experience, a like emotional, like this is what's happening and kind of thing. And we only were looking at like numbers of like people who participated and, and the demographics and the the audience numbers and all these things. It would have been a very different, you know, study and that kind of thing. Um, I feel like more people in like STEM research need to like, stop being so stuffy about like numbers and everything and like see you know all of these things for all of the different sides if that makes sense especially when you're talking about like the kind of usability research that you do where it's all mm -hmm. about experience you know and could you tell us a little bit about about that as a, a kind of research for those of us who are are not like computer science geniuses yeah. like yourself yeah and I have to say <laughs> well, one of our um, one of our uh, guest artists from the Girl Project, Henry Layton, who came in to fight with the girls one summer, he's, oh. he's teaching uh, in California, and he just, with his university, ordered the virtual virtual reality stuff, sent it to his actors. They were trying to create a play with virtual reality, and it's so exciting to hear that you're marrying this research and virtual reality with this artistic um, uh, passion that you have. So yeah, I'm excited to hear about it. And I just wanted to put it out there that Henry's been working on it as well. Yeah, so if you wanna give my information to him, I would be more than happy to collaborate. Uh, yeah. Being at a university, I have some credentials. I can send him my CV, but <laughs> no, but seriously, I was, I love, yeah, yeah, networking, um, always networking. Um, mm -hmm. Can you ask the question again, though? Because yeah, tell us about usability research it. and how, like, yes. bringing the human experience toward technology and kind of what that what that could look like, right? If you're taking kind of that uh, the emotional lived experience lens that we we brought to because we did like with girl the PhD was in the girl project evaluation research. It was mixed methods, right? So we had like the quantitative mm -hmm. data and a bunch of qualitative stuff that we kind of looked at holistically. So. Like what, where could you, what is usability research with, especially with VR yeah. and what could that look like if you're bringing in that element? Yeah. So the fun thing about being in like virtual reality and like in, in computer science research where it's more about the application as opposed to like theories and stuff like that is that a lot of the research I do is based on user studies. So building an application um, with research questions in mind, you know, creating a, a, a design, like a study, designing a study um, that'll evaluate specific things and then inviting a bunch of people to just play around in VR and then answer survey questions. Um, I just participated in one of my colleagues user studies um, about interactions between the physical world and the virtual world. And I was basically there for an hour in VR stacking blocks. <laughs> and one, it was like 
like being a nerd it was like the coolest thing ever because I was just like picking up blocks and stacking them on the floor and then like a virtual <laughs> human would come by and be like please build me a building like that looked like this um <clears throat> but it was cool um and at the end I just answered a bunch of questions and they were things like how did you feel about x like what did you prefer like did you like this versus this like how did this make you feel um and it's kind of cool to get to um like it's just a different way from then from it's a different way of collecting data than you know the classic like third grade science fair where it's like let's measure how far like the water has absorbed in the paper towel like there's so many other ways to collect data um and we have to think about all those things because like in computer science especially it's not just you know working on databases and creating new algorithms and like oh a new language it's how the biggest thing is how effective is the technology we're creating to convey our point and and how effective how effectively can our users interact with it um and and all of these things so we we, we get to think about a lot of that and i honestly feel like in the future computer science as a field and, and research will require um you know us to have a better grasp on psychology and perception and sociology and all of these things because we can't really understand how effective the things we're building are unless we understand how people work so something cool about what i'm doing in vr right now um which is like locomotion in in virtual reality specifically thinking about like things something called redirected walking which is basically how can we make a the most seamless virtual walking experience in a space that doesn't match up so if i was in a room like this um, how could I walk through a building that was like half a mile long? Um, and a lot of the research right now is super cool. It, it takes advantage of like little like basically bugs in our anatomy. So like um, when you're looking around, there's a split second where your eye doesn't collect information. And so your brain just fills in that missing space with whatever it saw last. Um, and so taking advantage of that, we can change the user's like virtual world without them noticing um if Whoa. we can just link up where their eye movement is and like things like that like who would have thought about that if you didn't also look into human perception and, and anatomy and those kinds of things like research is so interdisciplinary um it's not you know we sit and we're in this corner and we're doing our biology research and you guys are over there doing like your electrical engineering research it's how can we work together as researchers how can we collect different kinds of data like how can we analyze what we're doing and like it's just so cool I'm so turned on by this. So like end game, <laughs> end game, right? I mean, yeah, this is what we yeah. do in the theater too, right? We're like, how do we, how do we target this audience to have this experience that we're trying to cultivate for them? Um, and you're doing that in the research world. So end game, um, you're studying this right now. If you, if you could create your future in 15 years, what exactly would you be doing with virtual reality? Bro, okay, I'm ready for this. <laughs> I I love I love because being out of college, like like everyone who's in college right now is like I don't know what I want to do. But now I'm out of college and I'm like starting my career. I'm like I know exactly where I want to be. Okay, so I hope to finish my PhD within five to six years. <laughs> that puts me at like 2026, hopefully graduating. Um, I want to work in industry for a bit. Um, you know, working for like Pixar Animation, working for Weta Digital, who did like 
based in New Zealand, they did a lot of the they they did a lot of the special effects for like the Marvel movies, working for Industrial Light and Magic, whoever will like all of them, hopefully at some point, take me. Um, and then, you know, working in industry, getting the industry knowledge, like getting to do research in industry, all those things. Um, and then eventually I want to go to a film school um, and create a program that's computer science for film. Um, to help the people who are in film school who are you know wanting to be producers or whatever um, and giving them the tools that they need in order to create their own innovative tools um, because I don't feel like this is something you need to get a PhD in, in order to you know make VR stuff and do all those kind of things but I feel like having someone who has a, a, a wide depth of computer science knowledge that has the industry experience of being in film and being a mentor and being a director of a program who's like, okay, like what computer science, what technology things do these film students need to know? I would love to create that. NYU, hit me up. I would love to work for you. <laughs> well, I think uh, you're, it's so interesting how your plan for like the other side of a PhD basically involves you like huge scale mentoring, right? Like that's, that's really mm -hmm. where, and, and that's, so that's really yeah. cool to think about that that's already kind of folded into your hopes and dreams is this kind of it's building not only for yourself but kind of the the connection between arts and sciences and tech yeah. applied technology for for the next generation too exactly yeah because like that's one of the big reasons why i decided to go into academia as opposed to industry was because i felt like i had a better opportunity to get to mentor and to get to be a leader um, you know, if I wanted to go into industry, even doing things like being a part of ACMW would have been incredibly more difficult because like here I'm still at a university. So there is still an ACMW. So like they have a mentorship program and I got to mentor like a freshman and like help them through their things. Um, but, you know, getting to be a professor, getting to be a PhD student, getting to be at that like at the upper level where you've had that experience and, and seeing the people who are going through the things you did, like I like would not like I couldn't see myself in a place where that wasn't part of my life like I, I it's it, like it, it doesn't make any sense to not be in a place where I get to be a mentor and that kind of thing what occurs to me too is how much like mentoring and you know Ellie and I've talked about this quite a lot like in terms of our own kind of the team reflections that we've done as we've been laying the groundwork for this podcast is just like what mentoring means for the mentor and I think it really in addition to what I was saying before as I'm hearing you talk you know, addition to what I was saying before about kind of elevating your own standards and expectations for yourself, it's also about this like obsession with learning and teaching, you know, that you're constantly trying to assess and learn and, and how to improve and develop, but not from a critical perspective, like you're looking to help people really grow. And uh, it just it occurred yeah. to me that in a way that I hadn't really thought about it before, how connected learning and teaching are to, to mentoring. Yeah, yeah. And it, like with computer science, I feel like a lot of the people who, you know, are the most passionate about it are those people who have such like an obsession with knowing, like wanting to understand how things work. <clears throat> like, you know, like I got into computer science because of like, my, my oldest brothers, they're both techie people. And they were like, you should try computer science. But like, before that, I would just go to them and be like, I don't know what I want to do. I just like understanding how things work. I just want to like, I just want to understand it. I just want to understand everything. And they're like, try computer science. And like, that's like literally what we do is just like, I'll just have like, I'll be like, hang out with my friends, like doing whatever. And then like, we'll just like my, me and my computer science friends will just go on a huge tangent about like trying to dissect how like 
routers work or like the airplane wi-fi and why it is the way it is and it's it's just like wanting to understand like the nitty-gritty and like piece everything together and then like because I, I have that need to like care for people and like wanting to help people that I can take that and be like, oh, okay, this is, this is why we act this way. This is like what we need. This is the things that are hurting us. Let's see how we can like stop doing that thing and be better. Yeah. I feel like it's such a, um, and so <clears throat> mentored or been in a space or fostered an environment for mentoring. Um, it may be hard to understand that, pretty much what the mentor received, like, like Margaret is saying is twofold, right? You're fostering an environment for yourself to learn as well. And I think with the girl project and voices amplified and why we keep going after this thing is because we, we saw your generation. I would not have known this if we had ever started the girl project. I, I'm not, I might guess, but I just having direct contact with your generation and young people like you, I know that you're going to change the world. And I wouldn't know that if I hadn't set myself up, you know, I'm teaching you don't apologize, or we're setting up like the ouch rule. And I don't follow that stuff. I'm still reminding myself at 42. I know Margaret's reminding herself. But your your generation is um, so unique and so far ahead of where I felt like I was at your age. So not not to flip this question too much, but I'll, I'll marry this a little bit, these two questions. I know that just thinking about race and gender and what you're, what you're understanding in the STEM field and then tying it to the political climate of America right now where there seems to be this huge divide um, and us looking at how to get people your age to vote, you know, come vote, come vote. I, I wonder what your experience is holistically of what you're experiencing in your smaller collegiate systems and what you see happening in our politics in America um, and how it affects you and how representation affects you and how um, you, you feel dissatisfied or satisfied with what's currently happening or what your perception of it is as someone who's young and obviously incredibly intelligent. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I feel like honestly, a lot of it does come down to representation and, and, and seeing people like you in order to motivate like why you should care. <clears throat> so like in thinking about with like computer science and like the lack of like women, um, it's hard for, you know, when you're in a class of like 10, 15, 20, like, just men um, and you're the only woman to feel like you belong to have the sense of like oh like I can speak up and like my opinion matters and, and all of these things like I don't I don't have to apologize for taking up space here um, because you don't see other people like you in that space so you just automatically feel like you don't belong um, and I think I, I think with especially with this election cycle I saw a lot of like you know people on TikTok and on YouTube and all, a lot of the people that we were watching um, telling like urging young voters to go vote and like we registered and like this is us putting our registration and this is us like going and finding our polling place and like it wasn't in a way that was like shoved down our throats and like like in a cringy like you don't understand us like you're from a different generation kind of way it was the people who we identify with you know doing those things so it, it was it motivated us to be like okay yeah like let me go register to vote let me go do all these things let me push other people and my friends to do the same thing let's talk about all of the stuff that's going on right now 
Um, and, you know, it was probably also fueled by like how much our generation felt like we were affected by, you know, Trump presidency and like all the events that had been happening in the past, in, on, in 2020. Um, but I felt like if, like, if we lacked any of that representation or any of that, just like, you know, seeing it like all everywhere in a way that we could connect to, it would have been, I felt like it would have been a lot different, you know? Um, and like, it kind of makes me wonder why, like, with like elections in the past, why that hadn't been taken advantage of. Like, I know that when like Obama was elected, I felt like more social media was being used. And like, that was like kind of like early stage of social media. <clears throat> but like, it's so interesting because like social media connects so much of us and like, especially our generation, that's how we communicate. That's how we get information. That's how we, you know, build our communities. Like why no one thought to take advantage of that in the first place and use their platform to, you know, motivate their audience. So I was glad that it, it was happening and I hope it continues. And it's not something that just happened because we were all very angry um, at the world. Well, and it's tricky too, because I think we've seen from the Trump presidency and in a, in a in a plethora of ways we've seen how detrimental social media can be as well you know that mm-hmm. you put an idea out there no matter how untrue it is somebody's going to latch onto it if you feed it to them in the right way and it's manipulation it's commercialization of something that is not intended to be received that way perhaps but interesting that it is the one way to succeed as well with with a with a much more diverse population of people and maybe yeah finding that representation yeah it's fascinating <laughs> no i was just i was thinking you know so when in kind of journalism school my, my master's degree is in communication before i i uh, switched to sociology so i could get that that quantitative stuff you were talking about earlier rafa because it's about you know being able to use all these different kinds of tools and to that point in like communication studies and journalism it's always the idea that the you know uh, media is a tool to be used for different kinds of purposes and with different kinds of values and ideologies, right? And I think right now we're experiencing such a you know we we've we've grown so much in terms of our uh, capabilities technologically, but not always with the kind of uh, ethical reasoning to be able to use them in different kinds of ways for for especially with commercial imperatives driving so much of like tech development and i'm just kind of wondering what your your thoughts are on this that kind of like that kind of dynamic right where like the the media is so it can be used in so many different kinds of ways and if it's maybe something like you were talking about before we need to bring in more especially in education of people who are programming these things more humanities so that fo- and, and arts education so that people can actually have some ethical moral lenses to look at this stuff not just the commercial thing what, what reactions yeah. do you have to, to that yeah idea so this is a this is a conversation that i could go on forever the i like i had this conversation with a friend the other day um but like the ethics of computer science and all these things like so like knowing computer science people and being in in industry and all these things the people who are creating you know facebook and all of these things their goal is to make money like they're creating these things to like you know fulfill their bottom line to like you know they're coding up their user stories etc cetera, etc cetera. they're not really thinking about the social implications of 
all of that stuff because that's not their job. Like they are not the people who are expected, like the people who are coding these things, they are not expected to even think past, like ah, I have to make sure that this banner flies through like when their person is like scrolling kind of slow so that we like keep their attention. Like that's all they're thinking about. Um, so it, it's like where we are now with where we're realizing how social media and you know all these other like tech applications and, and whatnot has kind of hijacked our society like it's kind of like yeah like it was gonna happen like but like it's it's not we can't blame you know all, all the people who are creating it because it's not like we were never expecting them to think about it and so i think with computer science and ethics it's it's going to become something like the what i was saying earlier with like you know people who are doing research computer science are also going to have to be well versed in perception psychology like the people who are going to go into app development and computer science of the future are going to have to take these ethics classes yes so they can understand like what they're doing and have like a better like view of it because technology is so ingrained in our society that it's inescapable at this point like you can't not build something and and like a small like little change to a button and not create a ripple throughout all of like human behavior in our society and that's absolutely like that's too much power for you know code monkeys and these people in, in at like google to have um like it's just, it's just crazy. Um, so and like, watching, have you watched the social dilemma, Rafa? Like listening to creators of Facebook say, "Oh, I don't let my kids on Facebook. Like I would never let my children have an account, even though they've, they've created it and made millions off of it." Right. The quote that like hit the absolute hardest from that documentary that I, like I was watching with my friend, we literally paused it, and I went, "Oh my freaking god!" It was something like the only two industries that call their like audience users are drugs and computer science yeah. and i went i just finished writing a paper where i said the word user like a thousand times and i'm like that's crazy like to think about like 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 what are we doing <laughs> that's super fascinating and it, it it also relates to kind of this idea of you were talking about before and this is something you know i want to make a shout out to folks who are interested in this kind of topic the work of uh, sherry turkle are you familiar with sherry turkle rafa and i'm not Summer, it's, mm -hmm. so she talks a lot about how it's not just using technology but technology using you mm -hmm. and the changes in consciousness yeah. and social psychology yep. that come with that kind of thing and um you know it, it's just uh it, it's such a i'm wondering if from your perspective in addition to some of like sociology psychology some of these other kinds of fields like creativity and writing and some of your experiences in in kind of the arts also help with bringing the kind of perspective that's necessary to to yeah. use these things without being used and still be human you know yeah yeah like i feel like like we all need to understand that like we're as humans we are very easily programmed we our, our behavior is very like <clears throat> like min like in really easily manipulated um and if we're not careful we can fall into those traps so like being on tiktok and like the tiktok one the tiktok algorithm is honestly like a, a feat of technology and i want to meet the people and like i want to understand how that works because it's just crazy because it shows you exactly exactly what you want to hear and what you want to see <clears throat> and it'll like 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 so many of my friends are like oh i'm on like the like neurodivergent side of tiktok and all this stuff my tiktok just like diagnosed me with like dpd and all of these things and like i get a lot of like terror reading tiktoks that are like you need to hear this and like after like the 10th one i'm like no 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 i'm just like making like creating this for myself like it's not tiktok telling what i need to hear it's me telling myself what i want to hear um but i can only get to that realization because i took a step back and i was like ah like 
I'm feeling a very specific kind of way. So all the content that I'm curating for myself is going to validate that opinion. Um, and that's where you get into the issue of like echo chambers and all these things. And like TikTok is not letting you challenge your beliefs because it's just constantly like validating the beliefs that you have until you're like, yes, like I have ADHD and I'm, you know, an anxious attachment style and all these things because that's all I identify with all of these things that TikTok are telling me. And it's, it's dangerous. Um, but also like helpful because sometimes you need that validation from from an external source to like recognize that it's more of a problem than you think it is and it's just you like you can't just rely on technology <clears throat> because technology is like you know manipulating our behavior and latching on to the things that like we give it um, so like teaching that awareness in schools and in general and and is going to be important if if not even just for technology for people to be able to be aware of the things that they're doing, the things they're saying, and like the things they're thinking. And I, I will reduce that down, Margaret, to a conversation we've had in regards to anything you're doing, not just computer science or social media, but even in the Girl Project as we were looking at creating curriculum that we would sell or allow people to use, and in reviewing us becoming an independent organization and being asked do you want to create an organization where you can be replaced when you leave or once the four of you aren't doing it anymore, it doesn't exist. And it's such a massive question and just passing, passing on a curriculum or passing on any sort of ideas and, and allowing the fear of allowing someone else to take what you're working on and you can't hold them accountable for how they're using your material or how they're working with it. And I think when we're seeing with these apps, like in the social dilemma, that these people are creating this content because it's their job and they're really good at it and they're doing doing things that we never dreamed could be done, but they have a conscious, yeah? And they're seeing the ripple effects of what they've created and it's terrifying and they're stepping away from it and they're like, don't touch this thing, <laughs> you know? And and we're so <clears throat> addicted to it. And I think it just melts down to, so you can refine that to so many things we do in our lives and having accountability and ethics and responsibility for what you're putting out. Um, and the accountability and responsibility, and that goes to mentorship too. It all, it's such a big, 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 it all comes together. Yeah. Yeah, all comes full circle. So I, I wanted to hear about like uh, on the kind of the using technology for good <laughs> side, let's talk about dancing and some of the videos oh, yeah. that we shared. That's so where I wanted to go, yes. I'm so glad you're with me oh, yeah. on that, Ellie, yes. Yes, tell us about dance. What are the what are the classes oh. you're doing? Why? Wh how does it help yes. you kind of celebrate who you are and express yourself in maybe different ways than the and take off those, some of those masks we were talking about earlier too. Yes, yes, absolutely. So like, like the the arts journey I've been on, I feel like I'm like a wannabe triple threat. So like, I did music at some point, I did theater, and I'm a dance. So like, eventually it all come together. Um, but like, <laughs> dance has been something I've been wanting to do for a long time. Like in high school, I started. I took my first like hip hop dance class, um, like my senior year of high school, but I had like, you know, been watching like, you know, America's Best Dance Crew and all of these like people. And I'm like, I want to do that so bad. Um, and it wasn't until I was, you know, 
doing internships that gave me enough money that I was like, okay, well now I'm going to invest this money that I have into dance classes. So I started taking dance classes at a studio in Lexington that was only for like adults. It wasn't like 12 year olds. So I felt better about it. Um, I started doing you know, <laughs> hip hop classes. Like, yeah. Cause like all the studios in like smaller towns, it's just like, okay, you're either like 12 or you're like, you've been dancing for 10 years and you can be on a dance team. There's no like adult. Oh my God, I feel classes. that so much, Rafa, like being an adult dancer, it, it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. And it's not like you were taking jazz and ballet. You were like, I mean, the videos I saw, you're in high heel boots. I was like, holy yeah. shit, that's great. <laughs> that is sexy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so I started doing heels at that class. There's um, an incredible person I met. Her name is Bryn. Um, she was teaching heels at the studio. And like, this is the first time that I have really like delved into dancing and done anything on heels. And like, I tell everyone who's like, I feel like would even be remotely interested in like dance is like go take a heels class because it'll make you feel like the baddest bitch ever like the energy in a heels class is like the most like yes queen you fucking get it like dance your heart out and it's like the most like it's a place where you can just like feel comfortable enough to like let go and like that's the whole point of heels because like yeah like you're sexy dancing and it's like oh I, I can go to the club now and just like you know drop it low and like get some like numbers from these like cute boys or whatever but it's like I feel fucking sexy I feel incredible and everyone around here is like doing their own thing and feeling themselves so like I'm just gonna like do my thing and I felt like like especially with dance like and like with all of, like the arts things that I've done the beginning part of it is very much like I feel you know uncomfortable I want to be doing this thing but I'm so anxious and like everyone's watching me and I don't know how to let go um and starting with heels was like oh well I just I have to let go like I'm just going to be comfortable and I feel comfortable in the space that I'm in um and so like heels has become one of my absolute favorite um dance classes and honestly in my opinion it is easier to dance in heels than it is to dance in anything else so if you feel like you can't dance put on a pair of heels um and then just dance in your living room um and then so I did I kept you know hip-hop training because I wanted to get better at hip-hop I kept doing heels um and then like maybe like my junior year of of college I was like I want to start break dancing um because some of my favorite dancers that I was watching in high school were these like b-boys and they were fucking incredible like all of the power and like it just looks so cool and I'm like I'm gonna start doing that so I started like teaching myself because there was no one in Lexington who was doing that but I didn't get very far and then when I moved to Orlando I found this incredible studio called DG Beck um, and met um, these great people and I got to start taking break dancing classes um, and then I've met people on campus too like one day I was just like skating around campus and there's this like little area with like a stage and sometimes I see dancers there and there was like these two break dancers and I'm like I want to say hi, but I'm kind of scared, but I'm gonna do it anyways. So I said hi, and now I break dance with them too. Um, and it's like, it's it's really funny because when I was like um, at the studio, they have break dancing from um, like on Tuesdays and then immediately after is beginner heels. So I would do break dancing. I'd be with all of these guys. Like I'd be like training whatnot. Um, and then they'd be like, okay, bye. And I'd be like, okay, bye. And I'd be putting on my heels and they're like, are you like taking another class? And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna take this next class. And not only was it, you know, another class it was heels so I went from like break dancing and doing all these crazy things to like feeling like feeling myself being all sexy and it's like the most it's like it makes you feel so badass because it's like yeah not only do I have the power to like do all this crazy shit but I also have the confidence and the femininity to go and do this too this stuff too now um, wait so when you're break dancing you're saying you're dancing with the guys and then you put on these heels I, I mean surely to surely to god there's some men in this heels class and are you the yeah, only yeah, yeah. on the break dance class 
I'm one of the only. So um, there's this an- there's another um, girl in the classes that I go to, and we're like the power like duo. It's, it's so fun. But like for a bit, I was like I'll probably be one of the only girls again. Like complex of being a strong female, male dominated field. All my hobbies are male dominated. It's like break dancing is probably one of the most male dominated dance fields, even though dance yeah. in itself is not. It's yeah. mostly female dominated. But break dancing, it's like you you see b boys and all these things. Um, but like I like I want nothing more than to be a powerful B girl who could just do like windmills and all of these like crazy power moves and be like yeah and then and then be able to just like drop into like some like heels movements like breakdancing in a pair of heels like that's on the bucket list because like the power yeah because you're skateboarding too yes yes I again my one of my one of my things on bucket list is to be able to do a kickflip in a pair of heels because the power um because it's all men too again and there I have met a a good group of women who skateboard with me and it's incredible um but like of course we're all I had a beginner level and all of the people who are incredible like skateboarders I look up to are all male um but like we we have this community of like yeah we're like badass ladies and we can shred it um and we're gonna be incredible and like all and like the the thing that I the reason that I can be comfortable in these male-dominated spaces is that like I grew up with brothers so I'm like I can be one of the guys but Mm. like you have when you meet the right people in any space you can just meet really great people and I've met a lot of great people in computer science I've met a lot of like great men in like in skateboarding and dance and all these people they're very supportive and like it's just about you know seeing those people who are assholes and like ignoring them and then really doubling down on the relationships with those people who are there to support you um and there to like hype you up because like I like I'll like skate like um UCF has as a skateboarding club which is incredible and they do skate meets on Tuesdays and I'll go and then there'll be like sometimes there'll be like pros who skate for like the local skate shops there or like people who've been skating for like five plus years and they're doing crazy tricks and I'm over here trying to do my ollies and they're like yeah you got it or like you're doing great like I see you and like every once in a while like some guy will come over um and like they're like oh do you want advice or like before they even like give you like anything they'll ask you if you if you want their their opinion awesome. or their advice which is something that I love they won't just immediately go and be like oh you're doing it wrong you're flipping the wrong you're not place. gonna mansplain like, you without your consent yes <laughs> exactly without your consent exactly and it's such a good like culture and like those people who are like pros though like if they give me advice I, I'll, I'll like they don't even have to ask I'll be like yes I want you to tell me what I'm doing wrong because you are so much ahead of me and like your advice is going to be like like gold and like they're just so nice about it too and they're so supportive so yeah it's 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 been it's been cool to like opening your eyes and like being open to people who are going to be nice even in male dominated male dominated fields has been has been a cool experience so I mean for Margaret and I I'll I'll put words in your mouth Margaret and for all of our listeners you sound fiercely confident fearless you know what you want you know where you're headed and yet you say that you're on a difficult journey with anxiety and confronting some bad habits. Love to turn the tables here. Um, (laughs) You know, just bad habits or unresolved issues that, you know, this is specifically something you said I would love to talk about. I would, I would obviously never put you on the spot talking about something, (laughs) but can you talk about your experience and why it's something well obviously because you understand the importance of mentorship but um talk about your experience and what you're confronting and where that anxiety is what it's stemming from if you if you know yeah yeah it's it like it is kind of weird to have been talking about all this like stuff that I'm proud of and I 
speak so strongly about having the confidence and stuff because a lot of the times it is something that I struggle a lot with having the confidence to you know do the things that I want and to feel comfortable in those spaces um, something that I learned from skateboarding that I try to carry through a lot of the things is the idea of just like you just have to commit to it you just have to you know push your foot you just have to like drop in you just have to commit and if you don't commit you're gonna fall on your face and you're gonna eat shit um, and a lot of the issues that I have with skateboarding, like why it's been taking me so long to even just learn how to do an ollie, which is like the very first beginner trick, the first trick you have to learn before you learn anything, is that I can't commit to it because I'm too afraid to just like fall. Um, and, and the times where I make the most progress are where I'm like, you know what, fuck it, I'm going to fall. So I like hit it as hard as I can. And then I, of course, I fall, but like I learned something from that. Um, but that fear of like falling, of like failing, of, you know, like I'm not going to be good enough or something bad's going to happen is something that has been a thread through my whole life. And then I recognize it's something that I'm not fully like, that I've not fully worked through and been able to overcome. Like I was talking to a friend a couple months ago and I'm like, you know what, like one of the biggest sources of my anxiety is programming. And he's like, why are you in computer science then? And I'm like, because I love it, but it's so hard because every single time you sit down and do something, it's basically like, looking at a problem you have to solve and coming to terms with the fact that you're like, this might be a really hard problem. I might be able to solve this problem. How am I gonna do this? And then you do it and you figure it out and it's fine. But like every single time you sit down and do something, you have to like, rec like you're, you're faced with, with failure essentially. And it's just, it weighs on you. And like, it's just, it's like, I reckon like since moving to Orlando and finally being on my own, I'm starting to grow into like, my own person as opposed to someone who you know is with my parents and is in relationships and all these different things i recognize that i've repressed a lot of you know a lot of those things and i, I i've been really good at distracting myself um mm. and i haven't learned how to cope and manage like these anxieties and stuff so like my first semester here was very rough and i was i recognize now that i was like dissociated through a lot of it and i couldn't do any of my work because i was afraid that I wasn't going to be good enough and and it and being in the pandemic being you know in the pandemic and all that stuff made it harder um but like I basically was like that was a failed semester and thankfully like my professors and everything recognized that you know it wasn't who I was and and they essentially like said here's your grade do do it do better next time like this is this is your start over again um and I had to learn from that and then I was like I'm better now and then this past February I like I I don't have I I don't usually struggle with depression or anything, but like I was sent all of February was just anxious, depressive like state and it was just bad. And my friend, like who I trust very much and, and is one of those friends who will tell you how it is. He looked at me and said, you need to learn how to process your shit. You need to take the time to be on your own. You need to stop avoiding things and you need to figure it out so that this doesn't happen again. And you need to be proactive about it. And I went, you know what? Like, you're right. There's a lot of things that I haven't dealt with. There's a lot of things I need to figure out how to do and I'm gonna start doing that. And, and you know, the dance and, and the skateboarding and everything has just been like exercises in, in practicing those, you know, confidence, like the commitment, like, you know, not being afraid about other people. Like for some reason I was able to get over my like stage fright and like anxiety with theater before I was able to get over my like life anxiety, <laughs> you know? Like I didn't even realize that I had anxiety until like two or three years ago, but like I, it's some, like it's just it's so ever present that I can't imagine myself without it now you know mm. um so it's just it's been a lot of like soul searching and, and recognizing like my own flaws and, and and finding what I need to well like finding those bad habits and being like those were things that I was doing that I thought were good but they were because I'm avoiding a bigger problem mm. it's so interesting to hear you 
reflect on this kind of dynamic with, you know, um, with commitment and bravery and entering into those spaces where failure is not only possible, but likely, you know, um, and uh, how that, you know, we were talking about that with my initial conversation and how, you know, anxiety, it occurred to me as you were describing this, how it's similar it is with my own experiences, like in academics, it's hyper performance oriented, right? Everything mm -hmm. is about, about that, but it's also, you know, you're in a lot of spaces where you're code switching all the time and you, you have to be hyper vigilant, you know, in order to not only know what's going on, you know, it's kind of the idea of dual consciousness from W.E. Du Bois, like you have to not only know like you have to know what the guys are going to be doing in this context, as well as how you're going to like navigate your own self presentation. So it just occurred to me too, that, you know, maybe some of what you're dealing with right now is like, you, you've been doing a lot of this code switching, being kind of the, you know, uh, being kind of the first in different kinds of spaces and that mm -hmm. there's, there's some stuff that comes with that. Right. Mm -hmm. From your mm -hmm. perspective. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely tough. Like you kind of have to pave your own way. And like, and like, like the reason that I, I care so much about being a mentor is because I feel like I, not that I don't have my own mentors, um, but like, I, I understand, like I wouldn't be where I was if I didn't have those people that I could lean on and make me feel more confident. Even if they weren't in the same space I was in, they were the people who, you know, believed in me and gave me the tools I needed to like believe in myself and to pave my, pave my way in those spaces. So if I can then turn around and see those people who I feel like were who where I was like five years ago in the space that I'm in, I want to like latch onto them and be like, listen, like I'm here to help you. I want to be a mentor for you. I want to be there for you because I understand what you're going through and I know it's hard and I don't want you to have to do it alone. Like I want to help you find the tools that you need so that you can be strong and you can, you know, accomplish all the things that you want. Cause I know they're incredible, but like the odds are stacked against you. So yeah. <clears throat> And I recognize this is a hard question, but I won't apologize for asking it. Um, what is the greatest piece of advice you've been given that sits in the back of your head in in all your pursuits or some of your most important endeavors? Yeah. Okay. I've been thinking about this for a while because I felt like the past couple months and meeting the people I ha I've had, there's been so many things that have changed the way that I think and changed the way that I act. Um, and like the only concrete, I guess, piece of advice that I can point to is the idea of just commit, just do it, don't think about it, just go for it. Um, like my friend um, who, like, I, like, I, like one of my friends who I care a lot about um, told me this thing one time where, you know, I have a huge problem with being indecisive. I overthink everything. I never know what to do. And I just kind of get stuck in like this, like analysis paralysis. Like I don't know where to go. Um, and he's like, when I don't know what to do, I just start doing something. And then I figure it out on the way. Uh, if I don't know if I want to go to the, to go out to eat right now and I need to go eat something, I'll just start driving. And if I decide that I don't want to go to that place, I'll just go somewhere else. And like, it, it helps me figure it out. Um, and that's like broken me out of so many thought loops where I'm like, you know, beginning of my day, I'm like, I have so many things to do. I don't know where to go. It's like, well, let me just like start going to campus or something. And then I'll decide when I get there. Um, <clears throat> and like not letting myself like not letting myself let the anxiety get the best of me so just committing to it and, and like in skateboarding and dancing in like my work just just starting and and not letting myself overthink what might happen because it hasn't even happened yet mm. 
So that's really fantastic advice. And I'm wondering if a complimentary question might build on your answer. Um, what are you reading right now or working on right now to better yourself in some of these, these kinds of areas that you're, you've identified? Yeah, so I've been doing a couple things. I I listened to Kenny's interview and she talked about tarot cards. I also just got into tarot cards <laughs> and like that kind of stuff. I like I one of my friends here is like like a full blown witch and like does all this stuff and like she did tarot card reading for me and I went that called me the fuck out. Um, so I got my own tarot cards <laughs> and I like will do like like when I'm in like a really like weird headspace and I don't really know where to start processing what I'm thinking I'll just do like a one card like um I'll just do like a one card tarot reading where I just like shuffle it until a card pops out and then I look at that and I like read it and kind of think about how that relates to my life because like the thing that I love about like tarot cards and like astrology and all these kinds of things is that it's an external way to validate the things you're already feeling like if you get a card mm -hmm. and it doesn't immediately spark a thought then like you know, it's, it's not like, that's not something that was on your mind. And like, you know, that you're like, okay, cool. Like that's something that I'm good with. But if you read a card and you immediately go, oh God, like that's me. It's like, okay, now you know what you need to work on because you saw it. Um, so coupled, like coupling that with a lot of journaling um, over winter break, I did a thing that like my friend recommended me that I did do this, but I took, I went home for like 10 days over winter break. Um, I texted all the people I cared about. And I said, um, I'm detoxing, like I'm not gonna be on, I'm deleting all my social media apps, I'm not talking to anyone. If you really, really need to get a hold of me, you have my phone number, um, but otherwise I'm spending this time to be on my, be with myself and be with my family um, and just kind of do what I need to do. Um, and having that like social media cleanse, that like people cleanse, um, and I just journaled. I think I, I looked at it the other day, I wrote over 20 pages over winter break. Um, just processing my thoughts and writing all the things that I, I was thinking. Um, and it really did help me. And um, I stopped doing that when I came back to Orlando. Um, and then after I kind of went through a lot of, like I, I kind of had some stuff happen and my friend looked at me and was like, you need to start journaling. You need to journal twice a day. You need to start processing your things, write down um, you know, the things that you want to work on the most and make a plan for how you're going to achieve that. Um, you know, set a time limit, you know, make it challenging, but not impossible. Um, and so I, I did that. I journal every day and I've been writing a ton about how I feel. And it's just been a, a good way um, for me to at least process things that I'm thinking because I'm a very, I'm a very writey person, apparently. It's, it's the things that I wouldn't have expected. Like I need to like speak. I need to write. I need to just like have things out so that I can process them. And that's been very, very, very helpful. What's your superpower? <laughs> or your I, unique offering, even if you don't think of it as a superpower, just something you think that you offer that is uniquely Rafa. I think my ability to create a comfortable space for people to break down their walls would probably be my superpower. Um, I, when I, meeting new people here, there was a moment, like a week or two, where I felt like everyone that I met immediately told me all the things that they were feeling, all their anxieties, and I'm like, whoa, like, whoa, this is, this is a weird power that I have, and I was talking to friends about it, and they're like, you're very trustworthy, you make people feel very comfortable, um, and like, you just, you just do, and I'm like, sick, <laughs> I love that, because I just, like, I love being able to take care of people, and like, to create a space for people to, be authentic and feel comfortable and mm. and getting to you know give that to so many people has just been like something that I like I hold so dear to my heart so that's my mm. superpower 
If you could have billboards on the highways of our country, what would they say? I would love to put the don't apologize rule out there. I, w I would love for more people to recognize that they apologize more than they should and they need to stop doing that. That would, that would be really cool. I love that. Let's get on it. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Let's go buy a billboard right now. <laughs> Here's the funding. <laughs> um, wow. So I want to move us into the campfire section or segment of our podcast, which is a moment of inspiration for our listeners and us. Uh, for our listeners who haven't been with us before, the campfire represents storytelling in an intimate setting that is unique to the people who are present and listening to this podcast. In our activism work, we refer to this as the closed container or circling, which Rafe is very familiar with. So, Rafa, what are you going to share with us today? So, I kind of went back and forth on what I wanted to share. Um, and I, you know, showed a couple of friends the different pieces that I was thinking of. Um, and I decided on this one because I feel like it is my strongest piece of writing that I've ever done. And I'm very, very proud of it. Um, and I felt like it was important for me to have the confidence and to get to share that. And for it to be in a place where more people can see it, because I only ever perform it when I'm doing stuff for voice for it. So um, the piece is called Concealed. Um, context, a little bit of context. One of um, someone who's really close to me in my life, um, you know, was very like pro-gun and was, uh, I had a lot of conversations about that with him. And it kind of came in a time where a lot of the world was very anti-gun because of all of these things that were happening at school shootings and getting both sides of these stories, it kind of gave me a different perspective and an interesting perspective that I feel like a lot of people didn't talk about. And so I wanted this piece to kind of spark a conversation um, to get more people to think about more sides of the story and take a step back and, and see um, why someone else's opinion would be valid. Um, so this piece is called Concealed. Okay. My car is parked in a grassy field. After a fair, it's late, it's dark, and I'm alone. At least, I thought. I know how to punch, so don't you even think about coming an inch closer. I rehearse, almost as reassurance. Maybe if I'm prepared, everything will be okay. I hope it's just a squirrel. I keep walking, but in my head, I see a figure approaching. I turn my hands timidly, make the shape of a fist, each breath followed by a step back. Maybe if I keep increasing the distance, the conditional distance for me to have to do something won't be met. It's not like I could take you even if I needed to. My mind moves my hand lower to a pocket where a knife is secured, or, you know, could be secured. And with one click, one flick extend. But I mean, I don't even know how to use this thing, right? And, and what good would the fist or a knife do now? It's dark, it's late. There's no one here but me and my fate. I'm a dead girl walking and I really should be running. Think about all the women attacked while on a jog in the park. Think about the bystanders caught in the line of fire, harmed by an act of violence that wasn't even meant for them. The facts, scare tactics, a mantra in my head as I traverse the world. There is no such thing as a safe place. And this isn't a conversation about if I'm asking for it or if it's my fault. But as a strong, independent woman, I have the obligation to know how to protect myself, to be able to do what is needed in the moment that I am the only one who can protect me. And it's not about being a feminist in a society where we don't need men to save us or about being the hero of a story, be it yours or another's. It's about the reality that we are living in a world where really terrible, scary, shitty things happen like every day. And of course, I know to keep my doors locked, to walk in groups, to keep my phone fully charged in the event of an emergency, 
But what if even anticipating danger, preventing those situations that will arise in violence, being proactive and vigilant, what if that's not enough? Am I prepared to fight for my life? People say that when someone is looking for a victim to attack, they choose someone who looks weak, an easy target. So I'm preparing myself for the situation where someone sees a small girl walking down the street, waiting for the bus, leaving her car, today's easy target. I'm preparing myself to be the one who is armed with the right tools and the knowledge and the confidence to use them. So I and whoever I'm with will not have to fear. And I will prepare those who I have influence over to do the same. My car is parked in a grassy field. After a fair, it's late, it's dark, and I'm alone. A brisk pace, I walk through the slalom of parked cars. Vigilantly, I keep track of my surroundings. My right hand is ready at any moment to reach towards the right side of my pelvis. I've got a Glock 19, 15 rounds, one in the chamber, safety off, holstered, hidden in my waistband, and I am not afraid to use it. But I understand the fear and anxiety surrounding a weapon of this kind. The laws surrounding the amount of force that is appropriate in any situation, I agree, it's terrifying and sickening that before I could even graduate high school, I was allowed to walk into a gun store and purchase a firearm, untrained, stupid, and irresponsible. I understand this conversation must be had. A lot of people lose their lives to gun violence, but we must also consider how many lives are saved when the right people possess the right tools at the right time. There isn't a simple answer here. There isn't a single answer here. There are so many sides to this story, but as a woman, an easy target, I wanna feel as safe as I possibly can. Quickly and confidently, I stride back to my car. I get in, lock the door, and I drive home. <laughs> it's a beautiful piece. Yeah, I'm really, really proud of myself for being able to write, write this, and I think but I think the reason I haven't written anything since is because this is, I just like, I just can't top this. I don't know. It just, it felt like whenever I perform it, it feels very powerful. And I feel like I always get the reaction that I want um, from, from the audience. Hmm. Yeah. I've, I've had a lot of, I always have anxiety about, um, hmm, uh, I guess being a woman and knowing that that yeah. makes <laughs> yeah. uh, incredibly vulnerable, um, mm -hmm. but this pandemic, I think upped it. I was having crazy nightmares about people breaking into our house. I got like these guards that you put on the doorknob that kind of put a wedge between the door so it can't be kicked mm -hmm. in. And I live in a big yeah. city. I live in Atlanta and it's, you know, some people think it's a dangerous city. I live here. So I don't see that perhaps as much cause I'm in it, but I, it's even scary for me to admit that Evan and I over and over discuss, do we get a gun? Do we get a gun? We don't have kids. We don't have anyone vulnerable in the house. What kind of gun do you get? You know, friends are suggesting shotguns because if an intruder comes in, it doesn't matter if you miss, something's going to land. Like oh, all these right, yeah. crazy conversations that I never thought I'd be having. But Evan left for three weeks to go to Los Angeles to help take care of his dad. And I was alone in the house in a pandemic. I don't know. Do you have these I mean, I know we all have these yeah. thoughts. Yeah, I like something that I do when I'm on campus late um, is that I will call someone on the phone and I'll be like, hey, I'm walking to my car right now. I'm on campus, it's dark. Stay on the phone with me until I get to my car. And my thinking is like, well, like there's nothing I can do if someone attacks me, but at the very least, someone will know something happened and they can check my location um, and, and, and like all those things. And like this, this conversation, the conversation I, used, I would have with, with my friend um, who kind of inspired this piece, 
would be like having a gun is the one equalizer you have in a situation like that like it doesn't matter how small you are how big the other person is if you have a gun like you have like that's it like because like I like I I like you know pepper spray and like tasers and like knowing how to do self-defense like those things are all great but like if you're in a situation where someone is like six foot seven and you're like five foot one 120 pounds like what is knowing how to punch going to do for you in that moment and it's just it's such a it's it's a hard conversation it's a hard situation to be in because it's like I don't want to kill someone like I don't want to be in a situation where I have to use that much violence but like if it's my life and versus like someone else's like I care more about mine like I don't know and like I don't have a gun yet or anything like that like it's not something that I feel like I have the confidence or the comfort to even like do like even saying all this stuff but like it is something that I think about a lot like if I live on my own if like you know I feel like I can't protect myself like what what can I do to to make myself feel safe yeah Samantha Hess came in to work with the girl project with UKPD and um, Mm -hmm. she asked the girls like do you do you ever carry anything with you to feel safe and I was like when Evans away I'll sleep with a knife under the pillow and there was a gentleman there um and Samantha has said, remind me to talk to you later, Ellie. But the the male police officer came over to me and said, do you have any concept of how intimate it is to stab someone? Like, uh, yeah. we think that a knife is the best thing to have because we don't want to own a gun. But the ability to, this is getting really um, dark, but the ability to like break flesh with a knife with your hand. And yeah. uh, a gentleman I worked with in security told me like, if you get a small gun it's really if if you land a bullet on somebody it's just going to piss them off like a taser is just going to really piss somebody off the cal- the level of taser you're allowed to legally own mm-hmm. so yeah i mean and you're a woman and this man's going to be just sheer size have some sort of power yeah. over you it's all so yeah. challenging to think about and it also i think speaks to this broader issue of anxiety, right? And the kind of generalized anxiety that is involved in the female identifying condition in the United States um, and the extent to which that violence and anxiety go together, right? Mm -hmm. We feel like we have to bring this hypervigilance into environments like a computer lab or a classroom because the the stakes are so the stakes are so high in this kind of again hyper competitive uh culture and i think it's just there's some interesting connections maybe between what the anxiety that we experience at least that i think about myself as experiencing in work performance kinds of things and thinking about the ambiguity of how i would react to a threat on my person and whether i would care about myself enough to be able to pull that right like it's, it's these kinds of dynamics of worth for women that I think you know really brings to the the fore um, are we worth fighting for for ourselves and would, could I hurt someone am I worth hurting someone for all, all mm-hmm. of these kinds of things I think are deep-seated in a lot of the anxiety that women experience and my own anxiety right mm-hmm. like when you think about when you think about men and women and like how they would protect themselves like you know women a lot of women you know have pepper spray and like all these things like the different things that they hold like they hold their keys in their hands but like if a man was going to protect themselves their house their property their family they're like oh just get a gun like why is that not our first thought too is like well if i'm going to protect myself the thing that should be the most important to me like why would i not use something that is guaranteed 
my like is going to guarantee my safety right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um and as we say female identifying i think too in our country with everything we're facing just um the violence against black bodies and the violence against yes. um bipoc uh uh it's it's different for everyone obviously the experience and I think just the sheer the sheer factor of size a lot for women is um unique but it's overwhelming all of it yeah yeah Yeah. it really is it is a way into empathy too to a certain extent with understanding what you know the what it is to be a body of color a person of color in our country you know it's not the same but it is it is the sense of hypervigilance, dual consciousness, all of that kind of stuff that, that because your life is on the line, that's why we have to say black, black lives matter, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's, mm-hmm. the, that's the stakes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And like, it really frustrates me when people don't like, when they like discredit the whole phrase black lives matter, because it's like, well, have you ever had the experience where like your life was literally on the line or you like were seeing like things in the media and all these events that are legitimately happening that make you fear for your life and like if you don't then like like you you, you're just not empathizing with these people and like their experiences and and it's just it feels like ignorant at that point well um thanks for sharing that piece i think it gives people a lot to think about and i think it lets well i remember the first time you read it four voices heard at uh the coffee shop um just seeing how far you've come and how writing evokes thought and how specific a feeling you can generate in someone with with your writing, um, anybody who's writing or learning to write, how powerful it can be and how thought-provoking it can be. I think it's so exciting uh, to generate those kind of feelings and conversations. So thanks for sharing. I, I love it. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, yes. So... We finish out our uh, podcast typically with our rapid response questions. <laughs> um, speaking of guns in a totally like <laughs> asinine way now. <laughs> um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna start start uh, grilling you here if you're ready, okay. Rafa. Yes, I'm ready. All right. <laughs> okay. What is your fir- uh, worst nightmare? Oh my god, uh, my something really really bad happening to my family. Hmm. What's your favorite curse word? Fuck. Everybody's. Yeah. It's just so good. It's so good. <laughs> so versatile. What's your favorite sound and your least favorite sound? My favorite sound is like something very clicky, like a clicky pen. Those are some incredible sounds. Um, least favorite sounds are anything very, very loud and like obtrusive. Like uh, the other, the other, this is not rapid response, but the other night, like there, someone was like speeding down a, a, the the street, like drag racing or something. And it, the, the sound was so loud. It, it's so scary that hate that don't like. Mm-hmm. If you could be anywhere in the world right now, where would you be? Paris. I want to go back to Paris. If you could have a meal with one person, living or dead, who would it be and what would you ask them? You know what? I want to I'd want to have dinner with the person I was named after because I felt like I never had the opportunity to like meet him and I, that would just be such a cool thing. Um so that. Mm. 
what would you ask? Anything? I just want to just like, I just, I just want to have dinner with him. Like, I just want to think I want to know in specific. I just want to know who he is. So I can, so that I could be like, yeah, like I was named after this guy and like I had dinner with him and like, we're like best buds now. (laughs) (laughs) What is your attitude to the world in one word? Forgiveness. Patience. Mm. Patience. Love that. What was your favorite game or pastime as a child? As a child, um, there's a game called House where you just play pretend and, and you have different roles. I, I know, I was listening to Ellen Hagen, but she said the same thing. But yeah, it's called House. You just are in a house and you play pretend. And the, the funny thing is, it's like when, as we got older, we'd be like, oh, I don't want to play House anymore. And then my oldest brother would be like, why don't you play Apartment instead? And I'm like... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what truly energizes you? People, getting to talk to people. What calms you down? Music. Hmm. Yeah. What's the first thing you would do if you were elected to office, as you should be, clearly? Well, the first thing I would do, like, for myself, would just look at all of the secret things. Um look at all of the secret things the things that I get to know now because I'm the president and they're my things to know <laughs> nice yes satisfy all that curiosity yes. right You're there's so many earlier. secrets that the government has and that people have and like as the president I have the authority to know all of them love it. sounds like a good plan so what's your uh, go-to COVID self-care activity oh oh being outside Finding, finding, finding yeah. some place to be outside, being in the sun, mm-hmm. something physical, active, yeah. Easier to do in or- Orlando than uh, Lexington this time Bro, of year. It is 80 degrees right now, and it's February, and I'm living for it. Oh, <laughs> stop. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, what's your theme song? Um. Oh God, that was really hard. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm gonna say uh, the Me Channel theme song, the do 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 because it's just like no thoughts, head empty. I don't know. That's the first one I thought of, so we're gonna go with that. <laughs> if you if if you are if you frequent TikTok or you are at least a millennial, you'll know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and what's your favorite season this is our last rapid response question oh, fall but now i'm in orlando winter <laughs> because winter here is basically summer <laughs> <laughs> awesome endless summer yes it really Rafa, is i cannot be- i cannot believe how i mean it's just how wonderful it is to talk with you and hear all of your schemes and dreams and plan and just all the ways that you're inspiring and making making change in yourself and in the world it's it's you know i've known each other for a while here and it's just so wonderful to be able to talk to you and and hear all of this at this juncture in your life and and this juncture in the life of the girl project and voices amplified and everything that, that this group of this collective is is becoming yeah, it's, it's so great to come back to it. You know, I think my the first time I ever did anything with the Girl Project was like six years ago. Like I was in high school and like 
now I've graduated college and I'm, you know, in my PhD, like in part because of, because of Margaret. And, and it's just so great to be able to reflect on all of this with you guys. Thank you for um, staying involved with us and continuing to represent and uh, be a part of what we're doing and for taking the time today to share the space with us and let us ask you all these intimate questions uh, to get to know you better. And I couldn't be more proud. <laughs> I'm a crier. Sorry, here it comes. I couldn't be more proud uh, or more honored to get to share someone like you with the world. Um, all of my friends and family who I say, oh, if you saw these girls and knew these girls that we got to work with and you were a perfect example um, as Kennedy was when we interviewed her of why we do what we do. And you are incredibly fierce and special. So thank you for giving us time today. Thank you guys so oh, much for yeah. thinking of me. It, it's, it's such, honestly, when I saw that email, it was such an honor that you guys would even thought of me. So thank you. Absolutely. Um, okay, we'll be sharing you with the world soon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hey Ampers, it's Vanessa Becker-Weig, Voices Amped co-founder and co-host. How incredible to hear from our amazingly intelligent and talented alumna. What an incredible young woman. If you want to be informed on some of the resources Rafe has shared, check out some of the following. Now, Rafe's mission is to help women unlearn the habit of apologizing for themselves in male-dominated spaces. She references the quote unquote sorry skit from season three, episode four of the TV show Inside Amy Schumer. Rafe also mentions W.E.B. Dubois and his work on dual consciousness. Check out the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy's entry on double consciousness. Rafa references the University of Kentucky Self-Defense and Risk Reduction Program. Also, the documentary, The Social Dilemma. Okay, Ampers, amplify voices, get informed, take action, signal boost, and share. And that's a wrap. Thank you, listeners and our guests, for sharing the space with us. If you don't want to miss our next episode and you'd like to follow our work, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Voices Amped. Voices Amped is part of our arts activism initiative, Voices Amplified. Our team is me, Jenny Benavides, Vanessa Becker-Weig, Ellie Clark, Dr. Margaret McGladry, and our intern and editor, Kennedy Johnson. If you have any questions that you'd like to hear from future guests, or if you ever have questions for us, hit us up on social media or email us on our website, voicesamplified.net. We'd love to hear from you. And remember, you can watch all of our interviews on YouTube if you search and subscribe to Voices Amplified. We'd like to thank Lauren Rourke for our podcast art, Tiffany DuPont Novak for our logo design, and Vanessa Davis for her beautiful underscore, I'm doing okay. You can follow her music at Songwriter Vanessa. We'll see you next time, everyone. Voices Amped is generously sponsored by the Kentucky Foundation for Women. For more information about our guests, podcast content, or if you want to learn more about Voices Amplified, follow our advocacy work or support our 2021 independence campaign. You can visit our website, voicesamplified.net, or visit us on Facebook or Instagram. And remember, be curious, be courageous, take up space, and make some noise.